3. Uh, Dave read it for us earlier in the uh, service. And we're looking through some uh, passages in Luke 5 and 6. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. I'm going through the motions in the Christian life. I haven't enjoyed reading the Bible for years. It all seems to be routine. I don't particularly want to speak of Jesus to my friends, although I know I should. That's just a little selection of comments that have been given to me from people desperately trying to discover the pleasure and excitement of being Christian. There seems to be a huge discrepancy between what we say the Christian life is like and the reality of it in many Christians' lives. For example, the psalmist wrote, My soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. But delight for and rejoicing in the Lord are at best a distant memory and sometimes something we have never experienced. We sing words like this, Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. But we actually allow the gods of career or leisure or materialism to dominate our affections. So I want to ask this morning, why the gap between what we say we believe and how we live? Well, of course, there are many answers to that. But the big answer in the passage before us today is religion. Religion can do us a lot of harm. Christian, it is a huge danger for us to drift into religion to allow routine and spiritual disciplines to become the basis for our faith rather than allowing things to flow out of a dynamic and vibrant relationship with Jesus. We saw last week how we so easily become like the Pharisees. Well, here they are before us again this week and we see them this week irritated that Jesus and his disciples simply are not religious enough. Last week we saw Jesus and his disciples at a banquet, do you remember, in verse 29? And the Pharisees, the most pious of all the religious groups of the day, couldn't stand it. They despised the circles that Jesus moved in. See verse 30. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, can't you tell a person's character by the company they keep? Well, Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, crooked businessmen. You wouldn't trust these people as far as you could throw them. Well, that was last week. This week, having been appalled by the company he kept, now the Pharisees are disgusted by the lifestyle he led. So verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus, you and your followers are just not religious enough. No fasting in their lives. Uh, There's a great surprise, isn't it? Not religious enough. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago and asked them whether they would call themselves Christian. And they said to me, I don't like organised religion. At the time, I didn't say anything. Now I realise exactly what I should have said. You don't like organised religion, neither does Jesus. And that got right up the Pharisees' noses. See verse 33, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Why is it we only ever see them feasting? There, of course, is another surprise. Jesus is being accused of having too much fun. It is, of course, exactly the opposite of the common view. The word on the street is that Christianity is restrictive. It's all about the things that I cannot do. Thou shalt not do this, that and the other. 
Christianity is so limiting and confining, it cramps my style. Not a problem that I've ever had, as I don't have any style to cramp in the first place. But still, that's how people feel. That's what people think Christianity is like. Following Jesus is about as much fun as watching paint dry. But look, here are the Pharisees making exactly the opposite complaint. Of course, I can understand why people think that following Christ is so tedious, because... uh, Far too many Christians present the Christian life as dull and restraining. You know, sometimes I look at Christians who tell me they're full of the joys of the Lord and I want to say to them, well, if you are so full of the joys of the Lord, why don't you try telling your face about it? (laughs) We don't often sort of present the great joy of following Jesus. But meet the real Jesus and we see that he is full of joy and following him is wonderful. Here are the Pharisees, you see, who do meet the real Jesus and they are intensely irritated by him. Jesus, you're you're not religious enough, verse 33. Jesus, your disciples are having a whale of a time. They're eating and drinking. In fact, we haven't seen them fast once, says the Pharisees. Now, of course, this is a very uh, serious theological issue for for the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought that fasting was a necessary spiritual discipline. They would have said that it was a a demonstration of my commitment to God. Crucially, they they taught their disciples to fast often. That's the word there in verse 33. Did you notice it? I'd never seen it until this week. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now let's stop here just for a moment. And let's be very clear. The Old Testament taught that fasting was obligatory only on one day in the year. Of course, you could fast at other times, but the Old Testament only insisted that Israel fast on one day of the year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. On that day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make atonement for the nation's sins. He would sacrifice a goat. He would then take another goat, a live goat, lay his hand on its head confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and then send that goat far away into the desert. Symbolically, the goat carried the sins of the nation far away. You can read all about it in Leviticus chapter 16. The goat that was sent out into the desert was called the scapegoat, language that we understand. We often talk about somebody being a scapegoat. Well, here was an innocent goat taking the punishment for guilty people. And on that day, all Israel were to fast. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 to 31. But that was the only day in the year when the Bible insisted that God's people fast. There were other times when they could, but only on the day of the atonement did the Lord insist that they fast. Now that is very important if we're going to understand this passage. Because here, the Pharisees were looking down their noses at Jesus and his disciples for not fasting often, verse 33. John's disciples often fast and pray. Now do you see the point? The Pharisees were making demands on their disciples that the Lord himself did not make. That's religion. Man-made rules. And that is a disaster. Because following rules that men make up 
we can easily fool ourselves into thinking we're spiritual. You can imagine these people, can't you? They must have thought they were really spiritual because they often fasted. But be sure there's nothing spiritual about doing things the Bible does not demand of us. Nothing spiritual about doing things the Lord has never asked us to do. That's the issue before Jesus. And it is a huge surprise to see how Jesus answered. See, in verse 34, I would have expected Jesus to answer the Pharisees a bit like this. It isn't the Day of Atonement, so we're not obliged to fast by law, and any insistence to do so is man-made religion. That would have been a fair, good and biblical answer. But the way Jesus responds is much deeper and much more significant. Look at what he says in verse 34. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Jesus says, Whoever fasts at a wedding reception, a wedding is a time to feast. If you're looking into Christian things and you want to know how good it is to be a Christian, just remember the last time you were at a wedding reception. Remember what a great occasion it was and what a great time you had. If you're married, remember your own wedding day, the happiest day of your life. That's how good it is to follow Jesus, to know his presence and his forgiveness, to know for certain that we're going to spend all eternity with him in the new creation. Following Jesus is a delight, not a duty. Well, if you're looking into Christian things, just think about that. But now, Christian, let me ask you, is that how you see it? Maybe you've been a Christian for years. Is that how you still see it? An absolute delight to know Jesus. Well, at that level, that's what this is telling us in verse 34. But this is so much more than an everyday illustration. Jesus quite deliberately uses the language of the bridegroom to declare who he is. Verse 34, you see, is not just an illustration, it's something much stronger than that. Keep your finger in in, in Luke chapter 5 and turn back with me to the other reading that we had earlier in the the service. Isaiah chapter 62, page 749 is the page number. And here we'll see why Jesus uses the language of the bridegroom uh, in Luke 5. Page 749, Isaiah 62. And verse 5. Are you there? Isaiah 62 verse 5. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now do you see, by calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus is claiming to be none other than the God of Israel. Uh, There are other times when the Old Testament picks up this language, where he uses this language of the bridegroom. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And while we're in Isaiah, look back to chapter 61 and verse 1. I wonder if these words ring some bells with you. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Do you remember? Those are the very words that Jesus quoted in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. And we read in Luke chapter 4 that after rolling up the scroll, he sat down and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now Luke clearly has this section of Isaiah in his mind as he wrote his gospel. And what does this scripture promise? Isaiah 61 verse 3. God will provide for those 
who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Listen to this, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. When your God has come to you to rejoice over you, there simply is no place for fasting. Gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. It is such good news that your heart will leap. So as we come back to Luke chapter 5, here we see why the disciples were not fasting. Because their God has come to them. This is such a joyful occasion. And in calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus is claiming to be God and claiming to bring about this day of rejoicing. However, says Jesus in Luke 5.35, there will come a day when the disciples will fast, the day that Jesus is crucified. On that day it will be entirely appropriate to fast. That day will be the day of atonement that the Old Testament pointed towards. That day when Jesus is crucified, he will be the scapegoat taking upon himself the sin of the world. Of course, his disciples will fast on that day. But now, the necessity for fasting is over. Now, please don't hear me. This is not teaching that there's no place for fasting now, but it's just that it's not a requirement of the Christian life. No one could demand of you that you fast. And it certainly doesn't make you any more spiritual if you do. We're not even expected to fast once a year as the Jews were because Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant law by becoming the scapegoat, by making atonement for us. And that should leave us glad and praising God. Question, what will stop that joy in our hearts? What will stop us praising God from the bottom of our hearts? Hanging on to the old life is what Jesus says. See, that's what Jesus teaches in the parables that follow. Spot the language of old and new in verses 36, 37 and 39. Verse 36, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. Verse 37, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, he says. And what Jesus is going on to say now is you can't combine Jesus, the new, with your old life or old religion. Now, Jason and I were talking about this in the vestry. It's very helpful that you can sort of uh, refine your talk a little bit between one sermon and the next. What Jesus is not doing here is he's not saying the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is bad. He's not doing that at all. Remember what what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees had put extra laws onto people. Jesus is not speaking against the Old Covenant. He's speaking against anything that is old, anything that is before Christ. Anything that that we have in our lives before Christ. And he's saying the new is what's important, not the old. Let me see how um, this will uh, pan out. Three dangers then that he highlights in these parables. Firstly, to use Jesus to patch up your old life. Look at verse 36 again. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from the new garment and sews it on an old one. 
If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old. I brought with me two pairs of jeans this morning, excuse me. Just to make the point, very simply, here's my old jeans. They've got holes in them. All these times of crawling around the floors with the children. Now, I've got a big hole in my old jeans. Here are my new jeans. They don't look very new, but I can assure you they are. Wouldn't it be bizarre if I wanted to fix these jeans, if I cut a patch out of the new ones and then sewed it on the old? Two problems would happen. One, these would be ruined. And two, these wouldn't look very good because they just have a patch on them. Doesn't work, does it? That's all that Jesus is saying as we read verse 36. It would be madness to take a patch from the new ones to repair the old. See verse 36? If you do that, you'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, of course, Jesus hasn't suddenly become interested in needlework. His point is simple. You can't take Jesus, the new, and use him as a patch to patch up the bits in life that don't work. But that, of course, is what many people do with Jesus. I mean, let's just think outside of our own situation and then we'll bring it closer to home. Think of um, New Age thinking, New Age religion. You know, at a popular level, New Age uh, religion is a sort of pick-and-mix religion. You can take the best bits from different religions. Put a bit of Jesus into religion, religious mix if you like. Uh, you see, as you start to build up your own religion, you might say, oh, I don't have any, anywhere that, um, that, that sort of deals with love. Oh, Jesus is the best one who deals with love. I'll have him when it comes to love. I'll just take a little bit of him. I'll patch up the bits that don't quite work. But it's not just out there in New Age philosophy. The same approach is alive and well among Christians today. It is frightening to see how many people in our evangelical churches have kept their old life and simply taken Jesus to patch up the areas of life that don't work. They may have seen that there are needs in their life and they may see that Jesus could meet that need. So they've added him, a little patch of him, to the life that they already have. To patch up the needy areas of life, but not to touch the other areas, oh no. But, verse 36, you can't patch up your life with Jesus. It just won't work. Question, how many of us here have reduced Jesus to someone who patches up life? How many of us have tried to sort of add him on to our own life, our consistent, uh, our already, uh, already, uh, uh, the life we already have? How many of us have got areas of life that we will not allow Jesus to touch? Our career, our family, our leisure time, our money, our sexuality. See, if that's how we've constructed the Christian life, well, it won't work and we will never know the joy of knowing Jesus. Well, if the first danger is to use Jesus to patch up our old life, the second is to want to have all of Jesus while keeping all of our old life as well. Look at verse 37. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Uh, Years ago when I was a lad, wine-making and beer-making kits became all the rage. Do you remember? I think you can still buy them, but uh, it was just, everybody was doing it. I remember my dad's home beer-making well. And I remember wasting hours looking at the demijohn that he used to 
uh, brew the beer in, this huge container that the beer was fermenting in. And at the top of the demijohn there was a a little U-bend with a little bit of water in it. And as the beer fermented, so the gas bubbles sort of would pass through the little U-bend and pop out the other side. I spent hours doing that, watching that. What a misspent youth. (laughs) The U-bend was a crucial part of the equipment to let the gas escape. If you just put the bottle, if you put, put a top on the bottle, you were in for a huge explosion, as indeed many people did have. Uh, in this, this time when home brewing was all the rage, with ending up with ale all over their garage walls. Now, for the same reason, you don't put new wine, uh, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. You put new wine into new wineskins, says Jesus. New wineskins have some give, but old wineskins have already stretched and then become hard. So, if you put new wine into old wineskins, as the wine ferments, the wineskins burst and you lose the wine. That's the picture in verse 37. And Jesus says, it is disastrous to do that with me. But again, people try it all the time. And we've got to be sure that we are not doing that. And again, let's apply it to ourselves. But before we do, let me just apply it away from ourselves, just so that we can see it clearly, but then we'll bring it back to ourselves. I see it most clearly in Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism does not reject Jesus. It wants to embrace, as it it seems, the whole of Jesus. But it also wants to keep all the religious trappings of, well, some things from the Old Testament and then add them to Jesus. So, for example, Roman Catholicism wants to keep the Old Testament priesthood. Whereas, in fact, Jesus is, of course, the fulfilment of the priesthood. We don't need to go through a priest. Jesus is our great high priest but they want to keep the priesthood. They have Jesus as well, but you see, you can't have both. You can't have the old and the new together. Roman Catholicism uses the language of the new, but again corrupts it with the old. So Catholicism will speak of grace, but they don't offer grace at all. In Roman Catholicism, grace is received as a result of religious works. That's not grace at all, but they'll use the language. Now, the Reformation was about exposing that because it doesn't work. The new wine of Christ cannot possibly submit to the unyielding restrictions of old religion. Knowing Christ is a dynamic thing. It is about a living relationship. It cannot be restricted. And if it is, eventually the whole thing explodes. Caroline was at the gym on Friday being shown around the equipment by by the instructor. Somehow it came up that that she was married to a vicar. And so the instructor said to her, oh, so you're religious, are you? And she said, well, no, I don't like to see myself as religious. Uh, Being a Christian is about having a relationship with Jesus. And the instructor told Caroline how he'd been brought up as a Catholic, but he'd given up religion. And so he kept asking Caroline about her her own faith. She uh, told him about Jesus. She explained the gospel. He'd never heard any of it. He didn't have a clue. And I've met countless people like that. You see, they, they, they've, they've had some exposure to things, but they've rejected Jesus. Well, of course, because they've never really heard of him. That's verse 37, isn't it? Verse 37, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out. The important thing's gone. And it's a danger that we have too. 
We can easily try to embrace Jesus but want to keep all the old forms of religion. If we do that, we will never really enjoy Jesus. Well, the first danger then is to use Jesus to patch up our old life. The second is to want uh, all of Jesus while keeping all of the old life. The third danger is of religion inoculating us against Jesus. Look at verse 39. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. His point here is, again, it's a different point to the the verses 36, 37 and 38. It's a new point. Jesus says some people aren't even prepared to taste the new wine. I think he's getting at the Pharisees here. See, verse 39 is the snobbery of the wine connoisseur. You know, the person that thinks that unless a wine has been around for years, it can't possibly be any good. We say it of people sometimes, don't we? Jason's just turned 40, hasn't he? We all know that. It's been mentioned from this pulpit before. Not by me, but from somebody else. Now, I would guess, Jason, that at least one person will say to you, if not now, at some point in life, Jason, you're like a good wine. You mature with age. (laughs) See, that's how we try to encourage people as we get older, don't we? We don't sort of say you'll get creaky, aching bones. We say you're maturing with age. Now, that's how the Pharisees saw it. Only the old was any good. See, like an old wine. No one the new stuff. They didn't want Jesus. To to them, he was the new kid on the block. He was, in fact, the fulfilment of their scriptures, but they couldn't see it. And even though Jesus has been around for 2,000 years now, the same danger exists today. For anyone who's been exposed to religion, a little bit of a religion inoculates you against Jesus. People who, for example, have been brought up in the Church of England, but have never been taught the Gospel, and there are loads of churches... Church of England churches where the gospel is never taught, where Jesus is never properly explained. Well, those people who've been brought up in that environment, have you noticed them? They are very suspicious of any talk of being born again, for example, because they think it's something new, something invented by American fundamentalists in the late 20th century. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-again ones. That is snobbery. In their snobbery, they reject what they think is new. They want the old wine, the thing that they've had for years. Of course, being born again is nothing new at all. It was Jesus himself who said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But when you've got religion, you reject Jesus. Do you see how that works? Have you come across that? Following Jesus, then, is a radical new beginning, not patching up of of our old lives, not to be combined with uh, any form of religion. And he is amazing. Knowing him is is so different from the drudgery and dreariness and duty of religion. But until you've really begun to follow him, you'll never know the joy of knowing the bridegroom. And while we keep getting stuck in religion and forms, well then we are sure to lose that joy. And there'll always be a discrepancy between what we say the Christian life is like and the reality of it in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask your forgiveness for the ways, the many times when we've simply used Jesus as a patch to patch up the bits of our old life that don't work, 
when we try to fit him into a system. We ask for your forgiveness, knowing that that is a sure way to uh, restrict him. Knowing, Lord, that it is a sure way to make sure we ever know real joy. And so we ask that you'd help us to look honestly at our lives, to realise where we're doing this dreadful thing, and to begin to allow Jesus to invade every area of life and for us to have a dynamic relationship with him. And we pray it in his name. Amen.